Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Elmore. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kristen Wilkinson. Dr. Wilkinson is a licensed clinical psychologist at the Barrington Center for Counseling and Psychotherapy in the Chicago area. She's also a contributing writer for Stepmom Magazine and an adjunct professor at Midwestern University. Kristen's specialties include working with young adults, women, divorce, stepfamilies, and bariatric surgery candidates. She has extensive training and working with anxiety, depression, body image, perfectionism, grief, loss, adjustment, and relationship and family concerns. And if that wasn't enough, Kristen also has an additional area of expertise, which is what we'll be talking about today. She is one of our longest standing ECPP coaches with Triad. And Kristen and I actually work together as ECPP licensure prep coaches with AATBS. So today, Kristen and I are going to be discussing frequently asked questions about the ECPP. So welcome, Kristen. We're so happy that you made time to be here with us today. Thank you for having me. I always have so much fun when you and I, Aaron, get to work together. So this is going to be great. Good. And I'm always impressed by your list of qualifications. I feel like that <laughs> there's just so many things that you have expertise in. It all feels different when it's on paper. So fair enough. <laughs> but we're Thank honored you. to have you here and your your knowledge about the ECPP process. So I guess let's jump right in. Would you want to share a little bit about what inspired you to become an ECPP coach and how you ended up here? Yes, that's fun to reflect back on in a sense. I don't know. Maybe fun's not the right word. <laughs> um, it, it's it's kind of a, an interesting time to think back to because I actually used AATBS in my preparation for the ECPP. And I remember it's interesting because at the time when I'd first gotten the package, it was referred to me by one of my supervisors on internship. She's like, go with this company. They're great, blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to do a huge plug here for ATABs, but <laughs> it's just interesting how she was like, go with them. And so I got the package. And at that time, I didn't realize that I had coaching as a part of the package and was kind of doing my own individual sort of study plan that I had put together. And it wasn't until towards sort of the end of my study process that I got connected with a coach. And I don't think she's still coaching anymore, but Dr. Nikki Johnson was my coach at the time. And we primarily communicated via email. And that actually worked really well for me at that time. And it was one of those things where when I was working with her, I felt just not alone. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, when I was preparing for the ECPP, I had just kind of finished internship. It was in the thick of postdoc, kind of went right into it. And I just didn't really know anybody else who was doing what I was doing. And so to have somebody who had been through it and who was just able to understand what I was going through and share that support, I, I'm sure she would reflect back when some of my emails to her were like, okay, wow, we're a little anxious here. But she just was such a, a calming presence and led the validation of like, yeah, Kristen, you know, you're you're in the right direction. Like, oh, a little bit more to go. We got this. It's just having that cheerleader was really awesome during my process. And so when I passed the test, I remember talking to her about it and being like, hey, like you were just such an integral part of this for me. And how can I give back, you know, and do the things that you were doing for me? And kind of took it from there, but I wanted to share this story. So Nick, if you're listening, I hope you get a chuckle. But when I passed the ECPP, one of my biggest memories from coaching was I emailed her. I didn't think she was going to respond right away because I figured, you know, she was off doing other things. But I remember 
I, I passed the ECPPP and I don't know, I felt like the car just took me to a Nordstrom rack and I just walked in and I had no agenda. I didn't, I didn't send any money. I just couldn't believe what had just happened. And I was just roaming around like, oh my gosh, I haven't been in a store to like, just like look at things, you know, cause I've been doing this test. And so I emailed that to her. I was like, such a random fact. And she kind of laughed with me and was like, yeah, I did something similar. And it was just such a fun connection point of like, here's a human who gets me and, and was just there for me. So mm. shout out to her. She's awesome and hope she's doing amazing things in her career now, but wanted to give back. I mean, gosh, I still remember all of that. And it's been a long time now. Yeah, it is so nice to have somebody cheering you on and and kind of in your corner, especially if you don't have a cohort that you're doing it with. It's so funny. I don't even know if you know this, Kristen, but Dr. Nikki Johnson got me involved with AATBS as well. So I, I think her we age. talked about that one. I think we yes. did too. Yeah. So I actually went to graduate school with her and we're, you know, we're friends and colleagues. And at the time I was looking for something to do in addition to seeing clients. And she's like, you would be great with this company. And so she helped me get hired as a coach, but I can completely picture her she was very <laughs> prompt with her emails. And I've actually been with her a few times when she does get the email of somebody passing and she's just genuinely so excited. And I think that speaks to the culture that we have at AATBS as coaches, as we really are rooting for our coaches or whatever we want to call them, <laughs> clients, customers. I know I've been calling coaching clients. I, I'm sure that's not accurate, but that's what I've been saying. We'll say customers. <laughs> yeah. We're rooting for our customers, but and really just cheering them on. And I think it's a lot of it is because as coaches, we all have taken the test for the triple P. So yes. we've been there. We understand it is a very long, grueling process, but I just love that mutual connection we have. And I don't know if she's listening, but Nikki, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So let's move into talking about the actual exam. Why would you say that we even have this exam? What is the purpose of the triple P part one? Why do we need this for our profession? I feel like we need a separate podcast for this, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll do the Spark Notes version. I find that especially when folks are getting really frustrated with the process of the study process, maybe they're not quite, you know, getting the results that they they want to be getting after putting a lot of study hours in. I feel like I find this sort of like philosophical question come up even in my coaching sessions is like, why do we have to do this? Like, oh, it feels so unfair. Like, what is this process? And granted, I'm sure there are areas that we could argue, you know, could perhaps be improved. But just with where we're at right now as a field, you know, with the ECPPP1 is it just a, a basically, and I hate to boil it down this much because I know so many listeners are probably in the thick of the study process, but just to truly boil it down is that it's just testing our foundational knowledge of mm -hmm information that you need to know to apply as a psychologist. So it's really, in a sense, kind of like psychology 101. And it's not applied competency. It's not about how amazing are you as a therapist, which I think is why so many people feel frustrated. I remember talking with someone recently who's like, I've been a school psychologist for over 20 years and I can't pass this exam. I don't mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's frustrating because it's not about that. And we'll, we'll get into ECPP2 later, but this idea of how can we regulate people who are licensed in this field. So this test really is just more of a standardized way to give states, provinces, territories, you know, all the places where they require the ECPPP to regulate those who are licensed and to provide services to a vulnerable population. Because mm -hmm. that's what we do. We provide services to a vulnerable population. So 
in essence, this is to protect the public mm-hmm. from providers who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing in a sense. Well said. Well said. And for our listeners who are maybe just getting into the EPPP or just starting to think about it for the future, can you just give us a, a breakdown of what are the details that that a candidate should be aware of as they're studying for the EPPP? I would say first and foremost, depending on what study program you're using, definitely read that intro book first (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because there are different aspects of the EPPP in terms of topic areas and how they're, you know, emphasized on the exam. So to get into those nitty gritty details, pretty much any study program you would go with would talk about that kind of in the intro. But to just use broad strokes here, you know, it's the EPPP is a 225 question multiple choice exam. Usually you get four hours and 15 minutes to complete the exam unless you have some type of additional accommodations. Scoring-wise, you need to score 70% or a 500 scaled score to pass. Now, I will say caveat for the state of New York, they do have a different scoring system. I can't tell you how many times I hear this. So for those listening who are getting licensed in the state of New York, you don't need a 75% to pass. That's not true. It's still a 70%. It's just a scaled score of 75. So they just don't use the 500. They have their own kind of special scoring system. So keep that in mind. New York of them. I love it. (laughs) Yes. Just keep that in mind. It is still a 70%. And you know, it, it, it's an investment, you know, we got to be mindful about the financial investment in this. It does cost kind of at a baseline, $450 plus other fees usually that you'd have to pay through your state. And then of course, all the study prep materials, things like that. So it's an investment. It costs money. And I had mentioned earlier about accommodations. So depending on, you know, if you have a diagnosis of ADHD or any type of anxiety or other type of disability, you can apply for accommodations through your state. A couple of things, and I know we talked about this the last podcast you and I did together on the EPPP, is that when it comes to accommodations, you do want to get started on those accommodations like yesterday mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the approval process. Some states are really just behind right now whether that be COVID related or just a lot of applicants coming in. So really get on that as quickly as possible because you do need to have those accommodations approved through your state before you sign up for your exam. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind. The other quick thing I wanted to add just about state specific to keep in mind is that you want to check in with your state. Worst case scenario, if you do not pass the exam the first time, some states have pretty strict rules around retesting. So some states might require certain things of you if you do end up needing to retake the exam. So having an idea of what that even looks like in advance can be helpful for your planning of taking the test. I agree. And I think as coaches, I'm sure you have this conversation often too, is our attitude is we want you, you meaning someone testing for this exam, to be prepared and do it one time and be done. That's the goal. So I think double checking what if I'm under a time crunch or what if I do have this requirement at work and and working, if you have a coach with your coach to think through what is the best optimum time for me to schedule this exam? Cause we don't want people to schedule too soon and feel rushed. And then, you know, unfortunately, if you fail by a couple points, you do still have to pick yourself up and start all over and resubmit the application. And it's just really difficult. So ideally the goal is, you know, come up with a realistic test date 
that you can be prepared for. And then you only have to go through this one time and then you're done. And as coaches, we can help, you know, look at people's individual situations and help them troubleshoot that. But I definitely agree. I think it's helpful to look at your state and see what are the options here. In addition to also whatever else you have going on with your job and personal life. And I also wanted to add about the accommodations. I spoke with someone earlier this week, and I feel like it's a relevant comment for some of our listeners maybe, but I think it's hard sometimes for people to apply for accommodations. It's kind of this idea of, oh no, like I'm somebody that needs this. And the person I spoke with this week was saying, you know, I, I, I'm not good enough. Like I have to have accommodations. I'm not good enough. And I don't want that to be a block for people because why make this test any harder than it is? Like, it's already really hard to make accommodations. Yes are not that uncommon. Like it's not that uncommon for people to apply for a number of reasons. And that's a reason that they're there and made available so that it can kind of equal the playing field a little bit. If, if there is someone struggling with a learning disability or ADHD or major test anxiety or, you know, any brain injury, any of that, it's, it's really not that uncommon. So just want to encourage people, you know, it's, it's worth it. If you feel like you're somebody who would want that extra support, I mean, why make it harder? Just go for it. Right. I would add too, I was thinking about this as you were listing different reasons why someone might get accommodations. It might even be a more temporary thing. Like maybe you just had a baby and look at you going to go take your professional licensure exam. Wow. (laughs) As if having a baby wasn't hard enough. You know, maybe you're breastfeeding and you need time to go pump. I mean, you know, any type of accommodation around that. Absolutely to explore those options for yourself because I've had similar conversations, coaching clients that I've met with that at the end of the day, you still have to perform Mm -hmm. regardless if you get extra time, regardless if you have your own individual room, you have to still go and perform. And so it's still there. You still got to go and do it. And so what can we do to set you up for success so that we can get through this pass and get licensed? Absolutely. And on that note, when would you recommend people do sign up for the exam? That's the million dollar question. (laughs) I feel like that may be one of the first questions everybody has with me. I feel like usually a first coaching session would start with like, I'll be like, hey, so, you know, in a perfect world, when are you looking to test? Well, that's why I'm talking to you. Oh, okay. So that is a big question, I think, on a lot of people's minds. And so, you know, in terms of when do you go and take the exam? I would say you can always have a general idea of what you want to commit to in terms of, I want to commit three months of studying and you know how much time can I give to actually studying? I think starting with an organized study program first can kind of help guide you in terms of when should I take the test? Because each study program is set up a little bit differently. So, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what kind of materials they have to offer and, and your time commitment. Like, for example, with ATABs, we recommend really if you're going to study for three months, you really want to be committing 15 to 20 hours a week. So if you can't commit that much time, we may need to look closer to maybe six months. So really starting with a program, first and foremost, I think is a great place to start because that can kind of guide you. But of course, you know, we have to also consider some of the logistics just from the exam itself, right? That the EPPP lets you take the exam four times each calendar year. So every 12 months, the EPPP will put out four versions of the exam. So regardless of, you know, state requirements, or if you have a state that says you can retake this as many times as you want, you can only take it four times in a calendar year. So January through December. 
So with that being said, you know, you want to be mindful about if you have any types of deadlines for work or a new job opportunity, or even maybe your application with your state is expiring and you really don't want to go through the hassle of having to apply again. And then, you know, after applying again, you have to pay all this money. So some people really feel that time crunch or a lot of times we'll see maybe clients are just, they've paid for a six month subscription for a study program. They don't want to pay to renew it. So kind of thinking ahead about what makes sense for me, what type of deadlines do I have, whether it be personal, professional, and then kind of work your way backwards. Mm -hmm. So in terms of then when do you take the exam, it really will depend, I think, on the study program. So how are your scores? What do they recommend in terms of what type of scores that you're getting on the full practice exams? And then using those scores to kind of guide you of like, oh, maybe I'm a month out. Or, oh, maybe I need a couple extra months here because I'm just not quite scoring correctly. So those are kind of the big things I'm thinking about. But what would you add from your experience? Absolutely nothing. I think you nailed it. You said everything I was thinking. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great explanation. And I think, yeah, I think it kind of leads into a question I get often is, you know, there's so many different study prep programs out there. Well, maybe not so many, but there's a handful. And how do you know, you know, which one to use? And often I'll get people who want to kind of dabble in a few. And I feel like the guidance I usually give with that is it's kind of like choosing a therapist. If you have one goal, you don't necessarily need two or three different styles to help you achieve that one goal. And so same thing with the test prep companies is, is, you know, it's not the worst thing if you want to mix and match, but it can make things very complicated. And sometimes people end up working harder than they need to, to be test ready by spreading themselves between programs. So I think the idea is to look at, you know, what is this program known for? How long has it been around? What's the style? And try and like you would a therapist, try and find one that fits best with your study style. And then as you were saying, make sure you know what their criteria is to be test ready because it could be different. So, you know, for AATBS, we use a percentage that's very similar to the ECCP process. So you need at least a 70% on our practice exams to be ready. But some of the other competitive programs out there, maybe you need closer to 100% to be ready. Or some programs only really focus on the big six domains, whereas in ATABs, we're known for covering more of that material. So I think the idea is just kind of, you know, be a wise consumer, but pick one and just stick to it. <laughs> yes, yes. I think there are there are some situations where you might find it helpful to dabble in something else, just maybe more a la carte so to speak. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, I see this happen. Like if you've taken the AATBS full practice exams, we call them test masters. If you've taken them three or four times Mm -hmm. in a six month period, there's going to be practice effects. That Mm -hmm. 90% that you're getting. Feels great, but it's not accurate. (laughs) Let's be, let's, you know, give ourselves the best shot, right? That's not going to be accurate of where you're really at. So sometimes in some cases, we have to get creative about how can we get you some exposure to other practice exams? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, and again, a coach can help guide you through that if you're trying to decide the best way to organize all that information. Obviously, as coaches with ATABs, we're trained on AATBS material, not all the other programs. So we can't be as detailed maybe, but we can give you some big picture ideas of, of how to utilize those materials. 
One of the things we really wanted to talk about today, Kristen, is just FAQs, frequently asked questions about the ERPP. So what if we do like a little rapid fire and I will... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are you ready? Sit up straighter here. (laughs) And I'm sure that you've heard these as I have many times. And if there's any others that you want to add into that you often hear, feel free. But yeah, I think this could be kind of fun. So first question, there's just so much material to cover. How do I organize it? Where do I start? Okay, rapid fire implies be quick. So I'll try to be quick. So much material to cover. How do I organize it? Pick a study program. Find your home base, whether it's ATABS. ATABS is under the company of Triad, which also has academic review, tailored study method. Look and find your program. And once you find your program, they're going to help guide you in terms of how do you organize the information. Like with ATABS, talk to a coach. Talk to a coach right after taking your assessment exam. That's what Mm -hmm. we do. We're here to walk you through that and say, hey, you know what? We're going to focus on the most heavily emphasized areas first. This is how we're going to do it. Let's set it up together. And so really, I think finding your study program, utilizing all of the tools they have to help you. Yes. And if you're more independent, ATBS and all the triad companies, we have study plans. So if you hate talking to people, you don't have to talk to a coach. You can also (laughs) follow a study plan independently. (laughs) I laugh because I'm also thinking about getting a license in psychology and hating talking to people. Oh, that's true. So maybe in this episode. Maybe they're a researcher. Okay. Maybe they're a researcher. I love that. I love that so much. Yes. Next question. How does the different weighting of questions impact the way I study? A lot. My gosh, that's huge. You really want to be aware of that. If you walk into the study process and you're not aware that stats is a really tiny part of the test, we've got problems. So Mm -hmm. be sure that you're really familiar with the idea that there are different emphasis on different content areas. And so with ATAB specifically, since we're ATAB's coaches, um, and I know you also do tailor study method, but that we break it up into A, B, and C category domains. So just kind of quick response to that is like an A and a B domain, those combined is about 85% of the test, whereas the C domains is only about all that, what, 15% of the exam. So it's a much smaller percentage versus the A and B domains. So kind of keeping that in mind that different areas are going to be much more of the test than others. The question I sometimes get that I think is important for us to be aware of is that we say that there's these A, B, and C domains and that there's a different emphasis. It's all in just the number of questions. So it's not that some questions are going to be weighted necessarily more than others. It's just that you're going to get more bulk of those questions. So you're going to get more questions in ethics versus stats, for example, or research methods. Just keeping that in mind as you're studying as well. Yes, I often get customers who call and they're understandably very nervous that maybe their stat score is at you know, roughly 50%. And I'm like, I'm much more concerned about your abnormal score that's at 50%, right? Because stats is weighted so low that a 50% performance is really like an A+. But that's not the case with the high-weighted domain. So well said. I hear this one every once in a while. I think well-meaning people who have taken the exam and been successful share advice that seems conflicting. So sometimes I'll get people to ask, well, I've heard that I'm just supposed to take a bunch of practice tests over and over. And that's all I really need. Is that true? And then other people will say, well, I've heard I'm supposed to just really memorize and it's not really about the practice exams. So what's the right balance here? Great point. And this does happen really often. So I think maybe the big message here is be aware that 
everything that you read or what's on the message boards isn't going to always be true for everybody. It might be more case-by-case basis. So again, being mindful, this is rapid fire. (laughs) Um, The answer to that is it's not just about one thing. You don't want to just be memorizing everything in the books. You don't want to just be taking practice exams. Really, most of the study programs are going to be about finding balance. And so, for example, with ATABs, you really want to be utilizing all of the materials that you have exposure to. So for example, the books or the study volumes really is going to be kind of your main priority. And then using your supplemental tools of quizzes, flashcards, audio, live classes, using those to supplement the reading that you're doing. And in the idea of memorizing, really starting off with just coming from a place of understanding, not necessarily trying to memorize word for word everything that you just read in that paragraph, But just kind of stepping back and saying, okay, do I understand this enough where I could teach this to a friend? Start there. And there will be room later on in the study process to build in details. And then with the practice exams, you you don't want to just take practice exams and never open a book. You will miss out on important details. So really striking that balance and working with a coach or, or working with the different study plans if you're more independent to be able to find how do I sandwich everything in and sprinkle it in. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years, working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com. And use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. Yes. Yeah. In short, both. Both are important. And I think that some people are more naturally gifted at memorization. Great. It'll work a bit more in test strategy for others. It's vice versa. But really, you need both. And on that note, another question we often get is, I am not a good test taker. I hate tests. How do I prepare for this test strategy? How would you answer that? Yes. Well, in reality, who loves taking tests? (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of if you're not a good test taker, I do think it will be about striking a balance again in the sense of not just working on building your content knowledge, but also working on your test taking skills. So I feel like in a way, my answer is going to sound conflicting to what we just said. But I do think that taking practice exams is going to be important for you because not just taking practice exams in the sense of, I'm doing laundry, I'm watching my favorite show, I'm answering a couple questions here and there on my phone. It's really finding a space to recreate the testing experience as much as possible. I usually will recommend, you know, if you have access to a local library, usually you can rent out a study room and and drive or or take the public transportation, walk, go to that room, go to that area. It's not your home, it's not kind of a comfortable, familiar space. And time yourself, you know, four hours, 15 minutes or more if you have accommodations, go take the test, take breaks as if it were the real test and and repetition, do that over and over again. I usually say at least 
do that on three or four tests, if you can, depending how many practice exams that you get with the test prep company that you have. So that repetition will really help, I think, of course, build your your content knowledge, but also your test-taking strategy skills and your confidence in yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And and most test prep companies have some focus or resources on the test taking itself for this exam because it's a big component. And I know for our materials, we have a, a little booklet about exam strategies that comes with your resources. When I talk with customers and think about test strategy, it's timing, it's sitting still for four and a half hours. It's well, four hours and 15 minutes. It's tolerating not knowing how you're doing for that long. And all of that is encompassed in the test itself, not just your knowledge. So that is definitely something we work on as coaches with people and, and, on the timing component, I feel like that is a frequently asked question as well. So we have a system that we encourage where you can kind of do some math ahead of time and figure out what your individual pacing needs to be, including however many breaks you want, or if you just want, you know, 10 minutes extra buffer time to panic, that's fine. Or, you know, however long you want to review <laughs> your question. So you kind of work backwards and come up with your average pace per minute or average questions that you need to answer per hour. And then go ahead and do, we call it like a time checkpoint where every hour you can look up and see, okay, am I vastly ahead of schedule? Great. I'll slow down. Am I super behind? Oh no, I need to speed up the next hour. Or maybe you're right on track, but the idea is that you don't constantly have to think about the timing and the back of your mind Mm -hmm. the whole time, because that is distracting. And it's such a long amount of time to manage. So we do recommend doing those time checkpoints about every hour. Did you have any other tips for timing? Yeah, timing's huge. And and I think that's why we emphasize this sort of, you know, taking practice exams in an exam-like environment just to be able to practice that. Because you don't want to be practicing that on test day for the first time. You want to have quite a plan in place prior to test day. So the only thing I would probably add to that is time and time again, I'll hear from people like, I'm in a rhythm. I don't really want to take a break. I'm feeling okay. I want to just keep going and going and going until the test is over. I really encourage folks, you know, if at all possible, you may even have to force yourself in a sense that when you're about halfway through the test and, you know, you could kind of do your time checks, let's call it around question 120 or so, I do recommend getting up. You know, in the testing center, you will have to raise your hand. The proctor will have to come and kind of, you know, do a little sign out type thing on the computer. The clock will still go, keep going and get up, leave the testing center Use the restroom, even if just to splash water on your face, give yourself a pep talk, go to your locker, get a snack, something quick and nutritious. I mean, whether it's like a protein bar or a banana, something quick and easy, get that blood sugar up, get the blood moving because you're kind of walking around, have a sip or two of water and then go back. I mean, probably plan for about five to seven minutes because you do have to sign in and out of the testing center. So you want to be quick about it. You don't want to be leisurely, but there's really something important about being able to, to get up, step away from the test, be able to get that snack in, a little bit of sip of water, and that pep talk. Give yourself that pep talk. You know what? I got this. I'm almost there. Halfway done. Let's do this. And then go back in. I really find that a lot of folks are successful in doing that. And I did that too myself on the real test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good recommendation. Okay. Two more rapid fire. Are you ready? Sure. I'll be more rapid. (laughs) No, you're doing great. My personal and professional life is so busy. How do I fit studying in? Very common question. So common because not everybody is 
you know, maybe taking this test right out of school. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many different scenarios where maybe people have been in the field a while or they've started families or they're planning a wedding or they've got a big vacation coming up. So many different things could be happening. And so I really just want to first and foremost say it is possible to fit this in your life. You just have to fit it in your life in a different way than maybe your friend who, you know, was right out of grad school and studied for, you know, 25 hours a week. It might just look different for you. So I think setting realistic goals for yourself first and foremost, and that maybe you need six months versus three months because you can't dedicate more than 10 hours a week to studying. Okay, well, we can work with that. I think also too, especially when I'm working with families, like someone who you know maybe has a young family, it's really important to talk to your partner if you have one or any type of support systems around you to kind of help, whether it be with childcare or other types of personal responsibilities you have, just to kind of be there to support you so that you can go off and, you know, take those four hours on a Saturday to go to the library and take a test or to just have that quiet time to step aside and focus to be able to study. So really talking with your support systems about what these next, you know, let's say four to six months of your life is going to look like. There are ways for you to do this. You just have to get a little bit more creative and fit this into your life in a way that works for you. It might just mm-hmm. look different. Well said, well said. And kind of along that question as a follow-up is, you know, life happens, people have trips, people have commitments that they've already made. How would you recommend they study before such a big event? Or do you recommend that they wait? I get that question a lot, honestly. It's, it's one of those things where it, it becomes a question in the sense of, do I take the test before my trip? I really want to get this over with. I don't want to be worrying about bringing flashcards while I'm, you know, in Bali. On the beach, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, fair. But I, I do find, and, and I've seen situations like this before, really thinking about your own test anxiety and how you function under pressure. If you find that you do not function well under that additional pressure of the trip, or even, for example, sometimes it might be a decision about, do I cut hours at work? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're they're asking more and more of me. Do I make that decision of, of doing something like that? So I think when it comes to these commitments or big trips or big events, to really think about how that's going to impact you in a performance sense. Because sometimes, you know, you might be scoring great on practice exams, but then, you know, you've got that big trip that's the day after your test. Is that going to be on your mind during the test and going to impact your performance and kind of that whole paving under pressure? So just really knowing yourself and thinking about, will it really be the end of the world if you take two weeks after your trip to just kind of allow yourself to go on the trip have a great time, come back, and then sort of recap a little bit, do a little bit of freshening up on the studying, maybe take one more test, and then go take the EPPP. Maybe that'll be a better option for you. But one to know is an option. (laughs) And think about like, if worst case scenario, it doesn't go well, is it going to ruin your entire trip or event? Or, you know, it's, it's just kind of, I guess, a case by case basis is the answer. But these are really good things to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I guess we should make a really large sweeping statement that everything we're talking about right now is in regard to the EPPP1 because the EPPP2 has been floated. It is out there. Are you getting questions yes. yet from people about the EPPP2? 
A little bit here and there. I I find that COVID kind of put more of a, a pause on that, but I think now things are starting to ramp up again. Some states were really serious about implementing it and then COVID sort of happened and things got put on pause. But I, I am finding that question come up a little bit more and more. And I know you have a lot of experience in terms of, you know, getting materials ready for ERPP2. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but yes, I am on a team <laughs> with ATVS that is working on creating practice materials and prep materials for the ERPP2. And yeah, I'm, I'm having the same experience. I'm starting to get more and more questions trickling in because there are a couple of states that have already adopted it, actually. So I'll speak a little bit about what we know about the ERPP2 briefly. So it's a state-by-state state enrollment date. So you would want to check specifically with your state that you want to be licensed in to see when they are planning to adopt it. And if they're not saying anything, that means it's not on the horizon. So they're they're not going to suddenly say like, as of tomorrow, you have to take the ERPP2. They will, they will give you time to prepare and plan for that. But as of January 1st, 2026, it will be required in all states and jurisdictions. So it is coming. And the main difference in the purpose between ERPP part one and part two is part one is knowledge-based, like Kristen was explaining really well. It's a it's a test of your knowledge to be a psychologist, but part two is a test of the application of that knowledge in the field of psychology. So it has applied real-world situations that you're going to face as a psychologist, and you're supposed to answer according to what you would actually do. So it is more of a skills-based test than a knowledge-based test. And the format that we're aware of that ASPPB has shared is that it's 170 questions, so it's not quite as long as ERPP1, but you still have four hours and 15 minutes to complete it. And as far as I understand, the scaled score is the same. So you're still aiming for a scaled score of 500 to pass on this one. And you would take ERPP1 first. And then if you pass that, you move on to ERPP2. They're essentially, you know, two separate exams. And we will have more resources as it gets closer that are available. I'm sure other test prep programs are working on this as well. But just a little teaser, there are six domains. So they do have a domain breakdown to help you organize your studying. But really, it's not very study heavy, thankfully, because it's the application of what you basically already know from ERPP1. The domain breakdowns, I'll just read them really briefly, but scientific orientation, assessment and intervention, relational competence, professionalism, ethical practice and then collaboration, consultation, and supervision. So you can imagine how those really do overlap really well with the ERPP1 domain. So have no fear. You don't have to really learn a lot for this. But you do need, like, let's say that you haven't taken ERPP1 in a really long time and your state is adopting ERPP2 and you need to take it. You know, we will come up with some kind of prep program for you. But a lot of it is just skills-based, which is, I think, more fun, dare I say? Sure. I was thinking it's interesting in the sense that it seems like ASPPB, which is the company that creates ERPP, it sounds like this is sort of their answer to the cries of ERPP1 doesn't talk about my skills as a psychologist. So it seems that this is sort of their answer to that. And I, I wanted to ask you just to clarify this, because I know it's a question that I certainly have, and I'm sure there's another listener out there that would <laughs> perhaps be sharing in the anxiety with me. Sure. Is my understanding is that 
for those who have already passed the EPPP and are licensed in their jurisdiction, they will not be required to take the EPPP too. What's your thoughts on that? Yes, that is correct. So for those of us who are already licensed, we missed this phase. Thankfully, we dodged this bullet. We do not have to go back and take EPPP <laughs> two to renew our license or maintain our license. This is just an add-on that, again, it could start earlier depending on your state, but definitely all states by January 2026, it will just be part of the requirement for licensure. So you would complete EPPP1, pass, and then go ahead and move on to take EPPP Part 2. So when you think about testing <laughs> and your timing, this may be another factor. Again, it doesn't seem like it's too difficult of an exam so far. I really don't think it will be too difficult, but you know, if you can avoid taking an additional exam, why not? So Especially um, because some places, like certain states, I know you're in the state of California, there's also an additional law exam, like exactly. state law exam, or I know in the Canadian territories, there's this big oral exam that you have to take that's only offered usually twice a year. So, you know, when we're talking about EPPP2, there might also be additional tests that you have to take as well for your state or territory. Exactly. Province. But I think you're you're right on the money there because the idea behind this is that it's an application of knowledge. It's a skills-based test and it's another way to uphold the psychology standard of practice, right? And to make sure that the people that are getting licensed are skill competent, not just knowledge competent. So it's, I think in general, it's a good idea. And one other key thing about this, and then we can move on is the biggest question is like, well, how are they going to test this? Like, how do you test a skill in a standardized exam? So the thing that is Fair. very, I, I think it's fun. Maybe it's because I'm the one like helping create these questions for our test practice program here, but it's a different format entirely. It's really interesting and more interactive. So there are five different types of questions on this exam. Most of them, like the vast majority of them are still multiple choice, but the multiple choice that you would normally think of is only going to have three answer options. So it moves a little bit quicker. And then there's a second multiple choice format. They call it multiple choice, multiple response. So it's still multiple choice, but there are multiple correct answers. And as far as what we're seeing from their examples that they publish, they will tell you how many answers to pick. So it'll say your question prompt and then choose two or choose three. So you're not left in the dark trying to figure out how many to pick, but you have to think a little bit deeper on those. And then the remainder of the questions, there's three different formats. One is scenario based, and these are hard to articulate but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> so the <laughs> scenarios give you some information. You have to answer some questions and then they give you more information about the same scenario that goes deeper and you have to answer deeper questions and then they can stop there or sometimes they go a third or a fourth time and elaborate even further with more information and more questions. And the questions could be any type of that multiple choice format. So an example of what this could look like is a scenario, and usually there's a vignette, like a video in the beginning that you're watching of a client and a therapist, and then you're prompted to answer questions about their interaction or whatever the content is. And then you click the next tab, and there's more background information either about the client or the therapist or the situation, more questions. And then maybe the third tab is the psychologist notes or a business card or something visual so it can it can show up in many different formats. It's a more interactive format than just reading, but you're going to be answering in depth about one content area from all different angles. So those 
I'm not sure how they're going to score those, but that's what it looks like. <laughs> and <Wolf. laughs> yeah, but they're, they're interesting because you get to think in depth about a scenario. And then the remainder are point and click and drag and drop. And these make up the smallest amount of the questions and they are exactly what they sound like. So a point and click, maybe they show you, we'll go with the notes again. So a psychologist notes and you're asked to click point and choose and click two or three things that are inaccurate. So they'll prompt you what you're supposed to be pointing and clicking, but you're looking at a visual and trying to decide what belongs or doesn't belong. And they have a feature where you're not going to accidentally click the wrong thing. So on the test, if you hover <laughs> over something you want to click, it'll turn, I believe, yellow. And then when you select it, it'll turn purple. So it's not like you're accidentally clicking the wrong thing. And then lastly, drag and drop is kind of like matching. So they'll have a selection of options to answer your question and you're supposed to select one and drag it and drop it into the cell. So it could be like a chart and you're dragging and dropping into the missing cell. It literally could be like those word matching games we used to play when we mm -hmm. were little, you know, you're trying to like crisscross and match from two different columns. So it yeah. can look a couple different ways, but you're just dragging and dropping the correct answer. So it's a lot more interactive. Again, I, that's why I think it's more fun. Like it shouldn't be as tedious as a triple P one, but that's what we're in for. So I hope and you still have to take the EPPB one first. So listeners, yes. if you are still in graduate school and you know you're going to probably be one of these folks that have to take the EPPB two, that you still got to get through the EPPB one first. So as I tell coaching clients, it's like, you know, let's just focus on what's right in front of us. Let's not think a hundred steps ahead where you're just going to feel anxious. Absolutely. <laughs> so this is to come, but EPPB one first. <laughs> yes. And if you are in a state where you are going to take the EPPB two soon, you can email our customer service department and they'll keep you in the loop whenever our materials are ready because we are working on them. I don't, we don't have like a, a, a release date to announce just yet, but it's in the process. So if you need to be on that sooner than later, just reach out and we'll keep you posted. So, okay. Transitioning from EPPB2. Do you have any final words about the EPPB1 that you want to leave our listeners? Yes. I think being aware that embarking on this journey of studying for the EPPB1 and taking the EPPB1, it is going to be a part-time job. And if you really want to commit the time and effort that's needed to go and pass the first time, you just have to reorient yourself and think of it that way. A little bit of kind of bits and pieces of studying here and there, pausing, stopping, that doesn't always work out well for folks. So I think really just committing, committing to the process. But also, as I say that, I'm thinking about the importance of also finding balance that it is really important for you to kind of practice what you preach to your patients, that you can't give up your life. You know, don't not see your friends for three or six months. You know, go to a social gathering, go for that cup of coffee, go for a walk, still have a life outside of this. Even in a job, you get breaks <laughs> and you do clock in and out. So it is important to find that balance, trust in the process, trust in yourself. And as I always say to folks, I feel like any of my coaching clients listening are probably just going to roll their eyes is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> Those are my final words. <laughs> it's true. No, I would agree. I would agree. I think, and, and remember it's really doable, the large percentage of people to pass the first time. So even though it's overwhelming and 
it's definitely going to become part of your life for a while as it should, you know, to be successful. It'll, it won't be there forever. And one day you won't ever have to take this again. And I think keeping that motivation of whatever it means for you, why you're taking this, whether it's to finish everything for a new career opportunity for increased income, just to stick it to whoever said you couldn't do it and say, I did it, you know, whatever (laughs) your reason is, keep that in the forefront of your mind because it will pass one day. So I agree. Well, okay. We already mentioned that we have so many different study programs under the umbrella of Triad, which is the company we work for. Can you just give us a little bit of a website tease for where our programs are if people are interested? Yeah, absolutely. So we had mentioned that Triad does have these three different programs that you can choose from. We are coaches together for AATBS. So you can go right over to aatbs.com. And that really is a very comprehensive study items, packages, bundles. We've got live workshops, self-paced workshops. That's our most thorough study program, for sure. And you can also do a la carte stuff too, but it's really meant to be more of everything works in conjunction with each other. There's also academic review. That is another option. You can go to academicreview.com. So that can be another way to sort of bundle your study options. And then Erin, I know you are a coach for the Taylor study method. I used to be a coach for them too. You can go to Taylor, that's T-A-Y-L-O-R, studymethod.com. And this is all online. So if you're someone who really likes structure and you don't want a bunch of books to carry around (laughs) and you really just want something where you just sign it, kind of sign on and you're told what to do, it's a really great sort of organized tool where they take out the guesswork. You just kind of pick your your timeline and and go. So (laughs) check those places out. Absolutely. And I would add on the coaching angle that Taylor's study method has limited coaching. So there's three coaching calls, usually one at the beginning, middle, and then maybe a couple of weeks before you test. And then academic review is really independent. We don't actually have formal coaching as part of that program. So if you're just a really independent studier, that one works well. And then AATBS has the most structured coaching support. So if you need an individualized approach or you really like the cohort idea, but you don't have anyone to study with and you need someone to cheer you on, or you really struggle with test strategy and need an individual look at solutions for yourself, I think AATBS, the coaching angle there is the most supportive. And you get eight with ATAS, eight coaching sessions. And a lot of us do email as well. So sometimes you can get a hybrid of email and coaching calls. Whereas with Taylor study method, it's just the three calls. So yeah, just look into the options and, you know, pick, pick the one that fits the best for you, but people pass every day and you can too. That's what I told my I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Let's get you a shirt with that. (laughs) I'm sure they're rolling their eyes if they're listening. (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself too, Kristen, before we sign off today. I heard that you are working on a book, which I'm just so in awe that you even have the time to do that. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your book and then maybe where we can learn more about you and your work? I'm laughing for those that can't see us. I'm laughing because this book has been in process for years, Erin. Oh, okay. So that makes me feel better. <laughs> I really appreciate the, the the cred there, but it's been in process for quite a while. I did take a little pause. You know, I have a baby a couple of years ago, but we're back at it. So what I've been working on, it's more of a collaboration project. So it's definitely not something I could do by myself. And I so appreciate you giving me this quick moment to talk about it because any listeners, we did do a podcast on this that I did with Dr. Taylor that I think would be really cool to go back and listen to if you're interested and want to hear more. It's the sleeper effect episode. And so what it is, is 
I kind of can give you the quick elevator pitch is that it's um, the sleeper effect is what it's going to be called. It's a collection of stories by daughters of divorce. And it's basically a female psychologist and 25 other women from all walks of life. We join together as daughters of divorce to share our raw personal stories of unsuccessful intimate relationships, low self-esteem, a roller coaster ride of mental health issues to build community, raise awareness, and offer hope. And so it's really an opportunity for us to all share our stories about how having our parents divorce when we were younger, how it's impacted us now as adult women. And so being daughters of divorce and really reflecting on our experiences and how it's kind of created us who we are today. It's not a let's bash our parents book. That's not what this is about. This is about being able to really create a tapestry of these are my experiences in my life who have created who I am today and how I can learn and grow from them. So it's really more of an empowering project. And if you're interested and you want to learn more, you can reach me in a couple different ways. I do have a website. So it's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Wilkinson, D. Dot com, and I'm sure you could put that in the, the notes of the podcast episode. Yes. And you can also email me directly for the Sleeper Effect Project if you just want to know how you can get involved. I do recognize, because I'm still looking for more stories, that it's really hard to think about how can I talk about this, but you can be anonymous and you only have to tell one snippet of your story. You don't have to create an autobiography. It's really just reflecting on one memory that feels really important to you in this scope. So you can email me. I'd be happy to talk to you more about it just to kind of think how you can become involved. That is at the, the so that's in the email, T-H-E sleeper effect project at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out. And also on my website, you can just kind of see some other cool things that I'm doing. I'm at a really great private practice, which is my day job <laughs> in the Chicago suburbs. I'm in the Northwest suburbs. So we're hiring. If anybody is in Illinois licensed and looking for some private practice work, we'd love to talk with you. We're um, always growing and learning, doing new things. So I just love being able to connect with you, Aaron, and our listeners and just kind of get to be with the field in this way. This is a really cool experience and just grateful for everyone's time today. Yeah, we're so grateful to have your expertise. And, you know, it's always fun when you and I get a chance to engage. But yeah, I just want to reflect that I'm, I really like the project that you're doing and the book that you're writing. I think it's so wonderful to make that accessible to people and that particular niche. I'm sure it's really needed. And yeah, you're just very self aware and competent. And I was listening and thinking I would have had no idea that you struggled with those things because you, at least you don't portray that. But I'm sure it's because you've gone through a lot of, you know, processing and growth. And so I'm just glad that you're willing to share that. And, and I love books like that, that are a combination of stories and it's not necessarily super academic. It's, it's just sharing people's stories. That's what we love as therapists. Right. So very impressive. And I know one day you'll finish it. I know it. I know it. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Everyone. But yes, to echo what you were saying, you know, this was a really, I think, fun conversation for us, but also I'm hoping it was useful for our listeners as, you know, this is just a big time and a big time commitment to study for this exam, but we are here cheering for you, whether you need a coach or not, you know, we're here cheering for you as a company. So feel free if you are one of those listeners and you're needing some more resources, you can reach out to info at aatbs.com. They can kind of triage you to the other programs as well, if that's what you're interested in. 
But yeah, Kristen, thank you so much. I know you have a lot going on, but thanks for carving out some time to talk with us today. We're just so glad to have you. Thank you so much, Erin. Happy yeah. to be here. And I want to thank our listeners too for being here and joining us today. And just as a reminder, all the resources that Kristen mentioned for this episode and also an archive of our previous episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.